Baoyu heard her say this, he knew she must have overheard every word of his conversation with Xiang Yun. He reflected that he had only acted in the first place from a desire to keep the peace between them. And yet, the only outcome of his good intentions had been a telling off by both parties. It put him in mind of something he had read a day or two previously in the Zhuangzi. The cunning waste their pains. The wise men vex their brains. But the simpleton, who seeks no gains, with belly full he wanders free as drifting boats upon the sea. everybody welcome back to another installation of rereading the stone this is kevin wilson joined as always by william jones will how's it going today super how about you another great day another great uh chapter so this is chapter 22 uh subtitled bao yu finds zen enlightenment in an operatic area and jia jung sees portents of doom in lantern riddles this is a pretty uh a really interesting kind of an important chapter uh before diving in will do you want to do the recap and maybe a just a general overview as usual yeah absolutely so in the previous chapter chapter 21 we are kind of dealing with uh domestic affairs you know there's there's uh there's not necessarily any grand kind of moments in the plot that happen but we get to see various members of our central family the the Jia family in their kind of domestic setting um and so it begins with um our central character uh Jia Baoyu kind of sneaking into the bedroom of his uh cousin and love interest uh Lin Daiyu one morning we think not out of any particularly um malicious or perverted intent but mostly because he just wants to hang out with them. Uh, so she's there and also another cousin, a younger girl called uh, Shi Xiangyun, are there. Um, and so they wake up and they kind of, you know, get cleaned up and get ready for the day. And he kind of joins in with them and asks one of the girls to brush his hair, which he likes to have, you know, kind of carefully brushed and um, arranged in a kind of like a ponytail or braid of sorts. And so we kind of see in this scene a bit more of his nature, um, which is he kind of runs very much counter to the the conventions uh, of the time and the expectations of a of a young man from a noble family at the time. Anyway, his behaviour here kind of sets off his um, maidservant Aroma, with whom he's in a kind of um, romantic sexual relationship, and she's been annoyed with him for some time because his behavior is so kind of wayward and she's hopeful of correcting his behavior 
and also i suppose achieving some higher status for herself as as perhaps a a wife or concubine of his and this continues through this chapter she's kind of um she's pretending to ignore him and when he does get her to talk she has that real she has that aura of pretending not to care i suppose that people often affect when they're in fact quite annoyed with you uh, and this gets him very frustrated and so he sends her and the other maids away and uh takes a different maid to serve him instead and while talking to her he asks her name and she is named after a flower as many of the other maids are and he he makes this kind of crack about how they're you know such awful people none of them deserve to be named after flowers um so he's in a real kind of grump about this um and on his own he he reads through a section of the the zhuangzi which is like a classic chinese philosophical text in the kind of taoist school and one section in particular kind of really strikes him so he writes a kind of a passage of his own in imitation of this section um where he kind of bemoans all of the different women in his life making his life difficult and it's all rather kind of silly and self-pitying um anyway he he falls asleep and the next day he's in a much better mood and then the next day while he is off his um his cousin and love interest uh Dayu, uh finds what he's written and writes a poem of her own um following it which kind of um skewers and satirizes his pomposity um and then in the second half of the chapter we move to a different section of the family we move to um the married couple Jialian and his wife Wang Xifeng uh who are a kind of youngish couple you know i would think of them as being perhaps in their early to mid 20s and they have a young daughter and she has just caught smallpox and part of the treatment at the time involves various prayers being made to the smallpox goddess the child being watched over constantly in seclusion by two doctors the parents of the child being separated and forbidden from any sexual sexual activity for the period of 12 days <clears throat> and it's this final prescription that we focus on because the husband Jalian um is not remotely content with this and so at first he he goes after his own male servants but uh before too long he grows tired of them uh, and he looks elsewhere and he sets his sights upon um one of the women ser- servants of the household um who's known to be uh, rather promiscuous and she indeed has had her eye on him for some time and they they have sex many times and there's much kind of uh oath making and 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 you know declarations of um affection and dedication to one another and eventually then he goes he returns to to um to his room and um shortly afterwards the the child is cured of smallpox but the next day when his wife's maid servant patience pingar is cleaning up the the separate room that jalian has been sleeping in for all this time she finds this stray woman's hair um and confronts him about it and he begs her not to tell his wife which she agrees to do and then um when the wife returns when wang shifeng returns um she asks whether anything is missing from jalian's room or indeed if there is anything there that shouldn't be so she clearly has some sense that he may be straying from the um the bonds of marriage um but no patience uh, covers up for him and 
Wang Xifeng having gone, she she shows the hair to Jia Lian and says that, you know, she's kind of got him over a barrel now. And he plays nice at first and then snatches it off her. And she's very upset with him for, for kind of uh, misleading, you know, for, for tricking her like that. And he, seeing her so kind of angry with him, becomes suddenly very aroused by this. Um, and so he he tries to kind of grab her, you know, clearly with only one thing in his mind. And she manages to, to slip away and runs outside. And he's kind of in a fury and shouting about how, you know, we get a real insight into the sort of character he is, you know, very little self-reflection, very kind of uh, demanding and entitled, particularly when it comes to women. And he says that, you know, his he, he feels like his his wife is very jealous of him and, and uh, you know, is always suspicious when he's with other women, rightly so, it seems. Um, and, you know, one day he's going to he's going to make an example of her. Uh, anyway, at that point, Xi Feng returns and she sees this kind of strange scene where Jia Lian is inside the room and Patience is outside the room and they're speaking through the window. Um, and she kind of suspects something is up, but she seems to pin the blame on Patience for it rather than her husband, uh, which sends her off kind of in a in a huff. And that is pretty much where we, where we end that chapter. It's, it's a bit kind of... I suppose the chapter is a bit... I guess the chapter is made up of quite a few small parts, and so it's difficult to describe in a kind of clean um, overview sort of way. Thankfully, this chapter we're passing on to does kind of break down into two quite neat parts. So firstly, um, in the beginning of the chapter, we're preparing for the birthday of uh, Xu Bao Chai, who is our central character, Jia Bao Yu's other female cousin and his other love interest. Um, and it's going to be her 15th birthday, um, so she's slightly older than him. I think he's only 13 or 14 at this point. And for her birthday, the matriarch of the household, Grandmother Jia, arranges some you know, tasty food and drink and um, for some plays to be performed. And so during the performance, a troupe of actors is there performing kind of different scenes from different plays and operas on demand. Um, and while they're Bao Chai recites um, an aria to um, Bao Yu, which he finds very kind of very kind of moving, very touching. And once the performance is finished, the grandmother, Grandmother Jia, invites a few of the the best actors to come and kind of meet the family. And we find out then that they are really really young kids. You know, they're nine and eleven years old, which is quite kind of telling about the 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 era they lived in. Anyway. Um, <laughs> Wang Xifeng, who who we saw in the last chapter, the 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 wife of Jia Lian, she observes that one of the young actresses looks very similar to someone else they all know, and at this stage, kind of almost everyone knows who she's referring to, but nobody says it out loud uh, until Xiang Yun, one of the younger cousins, blurts out that she must be referring to uh, Lin Daiyu, the the cousin of our central character and and love interest, as we as we mentioned before, and. Bao Yu, knowing that this is maybe going to cause offence, he gives Xiang Yun a look as if to say, you know, probably that wasn't the most sensible thing to say. And that only compounds the sense of having put her foot in it, I suppose, that she feels. So she kind of storms off. He goes to make it up to her and tries to tries to talk her over, um, but kind of fails. She remains annoyed with him. And then when re- he returns to speak to Dai Yu, it turns out that she's also upset with him. So he kind of, feeling that he's caught in the middle... And, you know, he's being blamed for something that's not really his fault. Um, he himself gets upset. And 
he writes some rather self-pitying kind of teenage angsty poetry um, and later both of his cousins and love interests uh, Daiyu and Bao Chai find the poetry and provide kind of critique of their own on it and then in the second part of the chapter the household receives a gift from the imperial palace so one of the daughters of the household uh, Jia Yuanchun um, was made an imperial concubine some time ago and um, so from time to time she sends messages or gifts or things this time she's provided a lantern um, with a riddle attached to it and she asks the members of the household each to try to solve the riddle and provide an answer uh, and also to provide their own riddles which they do and this kind of sparks an interest among the household in writing and solving riddles and so they have a, a kind of party where there will be much riddling if you can call it that um, and these are written in this kind of poetic style and and each one of them is interesting in its own right as a kind of the intellectual exercise of solving it but they also each carry this kind of real symbolic significance about the about the author in each case and so we're hopefully going to spend quite a lot of time today delving into um, perhaps what the meaning of each of these riddles are and, and what uh-huh. what they can tell us about the characters. Yeah, for sure. You know, this is, yeah, I guess my like an opening uh, thoughts can also be divided into two sections. So as for the first half of the chapter, uh, I felt a continuation of the kind of dynamics we've seen in the previous few chapters where um, we see again and again uh, Bao Yu being torn between his... Uh, various you know personal and you know proto-romantic connections uh in the household um and his again being kind of stuck between uh you know these conflicting demands and these difficult situations and his reaction to that often being retreating into uh insight from literature so the last chapter we saw it was the the uh the, the classic uh, Taoist text, the Zhuangzi, which gave him solace. Uh, in this chapter, we see there's kind of a more of a, um, a Buddhist spin to things. Um, and this is kind of a, uh, a reflection of what we've seen before with the the Taoist and the Buddhist uh, monk uh, in tandem as these sort of um, parallel kind of uh, ideological systems uh and and like intellectual soporifics if you will yeah they're these they're these characters who the buddhist monk and the taoist right they 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 appear they kind of just dip in and out of the plot at i suppose fortuitous moments and then they just as suddenly disappear and so here we see almost the you know the, the literary equivalent of that same uh dualism as for the second half of the chapter I thought here there were very strong resonances with chapter five, the dream chapter. And so I've kind of been thinking of that part of the, the riddles as a kind of like a waking dream in a sense. And it's really interesting that here, the one who's overwhelmed by the, the waking dream, uh, the, the, like the, the, these like um, this confusing content is not Bao Yu, but actually his father. Uh, Jia Zheng, who at one point after, you know, realizing the kind of the getting a sense for the ominous, uh, portentous 
character of the, of the riddles, he has to go lie down. Almost, I thought, kind of paralleling what we saw where uh, where Bao Yu in his dream was overwhelmed by the songs and by the poems, and he himself has to, in the dream, go lie down. Uh, so I thought that was an, an interesting... Even even kind of the placement in the novel, so if that was chapter 5, was a dream chapter, and this is chapter 22, it's almost like it's about the right time for another uh, another installation of um, cryptic uh, foreshadowing. Yeah, another another dose of prophecy. Yes, yes. Um, and so, what are your uh, first impressions? I agree that um, there is a feeling of the riddles being somewhat dreamlike, definitely having a kind of prophetic or foreshadowing quality to them. But I think it, it's a it's kind of a good representation of exactly what's enjoyable about this book is you have text which is enjoyable purely on its own merit as prose. You know, there's nothing kind of grand or significant necessarily happening here. They're just they're just having a party or two. But it's kind of interesting to read. But then always tucked in underneath that is, you know, various layers of greater symbolic significance and and when you take the time to uh explore that and kind of unlock some of those those meanings you then like derive more um mm -hmm. uh, i guess enjoyment from the text you know i started early this week uh but i still feel as if i just barely uh reached a level of comprehension to do this this podcast because there are so many like weird issues with um the different different editions of the text have sort of different uh properties maybe the poems are or the riddles are assigned to different characters at various points some of them are probably not written by the original author but that's also contentious and there's always issues with um it, it seems as if as before we saw chapter five that some of the things that are um are foreshadowed in the material don't actually come to fruition in the novel itself and there's some question of whether that was the original author uh, censoring himself or whether it was a, a matter of the uh, the novels not being finished and later uh, writers and editors having their own kind of ideas and inclinations. Uh, and so there's a lot of that kind of uh, behind the scenes uh, controversy and noise that maybe we can uh, allude to, but hopefully not become too bogged down in. Uh, yeah, it's like... Um... The, the novel itself and its its composition is um, a kind of mystery in itself, you know? Like, the, there's so much about, as you say, like, really, who was it written by? And, like, who was it rewritten by, you know? And was it completed? Was it edited? Was it self-censored? Or was it censored by other people? Or um, And so you do have this, this writing and rewriting of the novel, which creates... Um, I suppose what exactly is I'm getting at? It creates like a how about this like a a palimpsest. Yeah, it's a, it's a palimpsest, right? So it's like it's like the you're writing on a wax tablet, and mm. you rub the the writing away and begin writing over it, but there's still like a yeah the trace of what was written before. That's um, good, yeah. Which is exactly how uh, Freud describes the dream. He has the famous metaphor of the magic writing tablet. And so, without further ado, let's let's jump right into it. At the beginning of the chapter, we have um, a discussion between the married couple from the past chapter, uh, Wang Xifeng and Jia Lian, uh, where they're discussing preparations for uh, Xue Baochai's 
birthday. And then she also goes off to speak to her grandmother, her grandmother Ja, about, you know, providing some money to pay for the cost of hiring actors and providing, you know, I guess fairly luxurious food and drink um, appropriate for the occasion. The only thing here that I really wanted to emphasize, simply because it's obscured uh, in the way Hawks translates it, is that this is, because this is Bao Chai's 15th birthday, this is her sort of her, uh, like her hairpin birthday, where she gets um, this sort of like, you know, this conventional uh, hairpin, which you use for kind of a, to put your hair in a bun, which is meant to designate uh, like eminent marriageability and so in the hawks that whole sort of that symbol is not translated but it's kind of an interesting right. cultural factor that uh is the kind of the, the motivation for why this mm. birthday is needs to be a little bit more special than previous ones right right that makes that makes sense yeah i i, I did pick up on it being the hairpin birthday but i, I didn't realize what the significance of that was mm. there's a there's also a small amount of good-natured banter between uh, Wang Xifeng and, and Grandmother Jia, where Grandmother Jia agrees to provide 20 taels of silver for the the cost of the party. Um, and Xifeng says that this is perhaps not mm -hmm. enough. And she says, you know, essentially, if you couldn't afford it, that would be no problem. But we all know that you've got absolutely stacks of cash. Um, the Chinese, she says, you've got, you know, gold, silver, coins, um, the lot. And it's so heavy that the you know, actually Hawk says them. You know, you've got boxes and boxes of boodle. Presumably, this is a old-fashioned <laughs> yeah. British term for you know cash. Uh, boxes and boxes of boodle. <laughs> the bottoms are dropping out of them. They're so full. And so Granny Grandmother Jar relates uh, relents and and um, she relents and provides more cash for the mm -hmm. um, for the birthday. Um, uh, uh, it, which is definitely a lot. Even I mean, even the original sum was, uh, I guess, comparable to what Granny Leo got for to feed her family for the whole, yeah, the whole winter at least, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, in an earlier chapter, we saw a a, a very poor peasant relative, yeah, who got exactly that amount of money to, as you say, see them through the winter months. So it's quite a lot to blow on just a single party. Um, but how about we kind of skip ahead to the actual party itself. What do you think about that? Sounds good. And so the 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 plan is to have a number of... Uh, we saw in previous chapters that they hired a group of child actors to live on the premises and to um, serve them artistically uh, in various ways. And so that's going to be... Um, we're going to see them in this chapter uh, performing a number of plays which ostensibly uh, Bao Chai and other members of the family have selected, although there is a, an indication that they're always thinking about what plays uh, Grandmother Jia would prefer. Yeah. Uh, so there's a lot of explicit or implicit deference paid uh, to her and to her uh, tastes. Do you think that she knows this? Um, because... Before the party, Xia Baochai has asked what plays she would like and what food she would like. And she deliberately chooses a style of play mm -hmm. and a type of food that she thinks Grandmother Jia would like. And then, you know, during during the party, 
grandmother jar says you know i've brought you young people here for some fun you know i want you to enjoy yourself you know that this is for your enjoyment kind of thing so do you think that this is they're being deferential to her and she's being generous to them back or does she not really Mm. grasp do you think that that they're you know i think she knows this actually seems relatively healthy I mean, it seems like this is the kind of uh, give and take that is actually, uh, you know, constitutive of fairly uh, balanced and, yeah, kind of like mutually uh, re- kind of reciprocating yeah. gestures. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's much nicer to have two reciprocating gestures rather than for everyone just to constantly be taking things for themselves. That seems normal to me. Uh, having you know, a troop of child actors live on in your premises less normal yeah yeah um, i think i'm glad we're getting some time to comment um, on that because um <laughs> and the way they're treated is a little bit uh a little bit off-putting yeah uh at one, at one point it's they're even like offered um you know like fruit and meat to uh to partake to to enjoy it, it very much felt like like feeding uh like zoo animals it was, it was, I, don't, I don't know if that was the intention but there's definitely a little bit of that kind of. Uh... I I I think so. Yeah. I, I mean, I mean they're performers, right? And and so exactly like their their function is to entertain on demand. Um, and so there's definitely, I think in any situation there's the potential for it to be exploitative. But when they are, I mean children and really children like nine and eleven years old, it yeah it definitely made me feel quite kind of uncomfortable. Right. And so. They're they're kind of exploiting their preciousness in effect. Um, although before we you know seem as if we're criticizing heavily, it's not as if our society treats artists or performers particularly well either. Uh, and and our society also has a kind of a strange and probably unhealthy relationship with child actors and child beauty pageants and the like. Right, right. And so you see that in, in various. Yeah. So, I, I mean, that's my comment there. Um, so, how about we talk about the... I don't have too much to say about the, the pieces that are selected. Uh, there's one from Journey to the West, uh, Shioji. Um, I guess the most important one is finally the one that uh, Bao Chai chooses because it becomes, a, you know, the, the subject of conversation between her and uh, Bao Yu. That's going to be very kind of important, and in and of itself is maybe uh, foreshadowing uh, Bao Yu's own inclinations and ultimate life decisions. So this, this whole chapter, I guess, has uh, kind of a portentous tone to it. And so she, Bao Chai is doing her. She is very much the kind of model, sort of filial child in a lot of ways, right? She, mm-hmm. as you said, is very deferential. Mm-hmm. Not just to her grandmother, but to many different people in the family. She's very considerate of others' feelings, you know, and she's always very willing to kind of put others first. And and I think that provokes a reaction of some maybe kind of confusion from Bao Yu, who is quite the opposite, you know. Like he he is chaotic and he is very much about pursuing his own his own <laughs> desires. Rather thoughtlessly sometimes, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um uh, anyway, she mm-hmm. she um, when she chooses this play, this play, uh, Zhishen at the monastery gate, which in the Chinese we just know as Shanmen, 
right? Um, Mountain Gate. He asks why she, mm-hmm. you know, why on earth she she would choose a play like this, you know. As far as he knows, she doesn't like this kind of these kinds of plays. Um, and we know from earlier that Grandmother Jia, by contrast, does very much enjoy this this style of play. So it's very clear to us that she's not chosen it necessarily out of her own desire to hear it, so much as you know a desire to be kind of the you know the good granddaughter. Mm-hmm. And uh, as for this play. My understanding is that this is kind of a uh, depicts a kind of a part of uh, Shui Hu Jun, where one of the characters, um, which, which just for, for for everyone's benefit is the Outlaws of the Marsh or the Water mm-hmm. Margin, which is one of the one of the other four great novels of Chinese right. literature. And, and and kind of in this play, it depicts one of the characters after kind of. Uh, getting in trouble in the secular world, he kind of takes shelter in a, a Buddhist monastery for a time. And then at one point, I, I think he gets drunk in the monastery and he attacks one of the, the monks. I, I don't know the full story, but that's, that's my understanding. And then he, he's again sent away from the monastery as well. And so it's, it's so funny that because it's presented here, his departure is presented as this very like noble farewell mm-hmm. but it's really funny to know that it's actually just because he got drunk and made an ass right. of <laughs> and so he's been yeah he's been banished basically or he, he's had to uh take exit from both the secular world and the uh the, the monastic world um and so this this kind of uh this area this aria that um Bao Chai is so taken with is his speaking to his monk uh, master, kind of um, saying thanks, but also saying sorry at the same time. And so it's interesting because I it it's almost as if uh, Bao Yu uh, I think he misinterprets a little bit uh, the meaning of the of the 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 aria um, as simply a kind of this. Uh, a desire to be free of um, all worldly attachment in a kind of general uh, sense. So, shall we have a read of it? Yeah, it, for sure. Um, um, do you want to? Do you want to take this one? I'm sure we can have lots of passing back and forth. Yes, um, I think I have it here. Let me see. Okay, so this is Bao Chai. She almost sings it to Bao Yu, uh, kind of at the side of the party. She's actually yeah, kind of, kind of. Sotto voce, you know, like under uh-huh. her, under her. But she's, but she's loud enough to. Uh, I think Dayu <laughs> complains after they're done, <laughs> which is a funny kind of very characteristic uh, behavior. Um, and so this is this is Bao Chai's rendering, um, and there's also some indication that this is purely the author's invention, and that extant copies of this play do not correspond closely with this material. Um, And so it goes, I dash aside the manly tear and take leave of my monkish home. A word of thanks to you, my master dear, who tonsured me before the lotus throne. T'was not my luck to stay with you, and in a long while I must say adieu. Naked and friendless through the world to roam, I ask no goods, no gear to take away. Only straw sandals and a broken bowl to beg from place to place as best I may. 
Um, and so... So the meaning of the poem is, yeah, it's very... There's this kind of sad sadness, definitely, to the to the parting. Um, maybe wishing it wasn't so, but but it's fated to be thus. Um, but also maybe a bit of romance to it. It's like, well, I have to go now. It's you, you can imagine the uh, the hero, you know, boarding the train to who knows where. That's a kind of. Uh, uh, a little bit of the romance of the road, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I, and actually, when you mention the road, it, it, there is a kind of Kerouac kind of quality to it, right? Like the, mm-hmm. the um, specifically because he, the reason he's being cast out is because he's been drunk uh, and tried to fight someone, um, <laughs> which is very, which is just like the entire plot of On the Road, isn't it? Like, uh, okay. tra- travel from place to place, uh, making enemies. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so, what do we want to kind of pick out from this poem, or um, from this aria? There's a few uh, kind of important details. I mean, it's pretty obvious the the lotus throne, uh, Lian Tai, is a reference to kind of uh, Buddhist imagery. Yep. Um, ta- what what Hawks has as tonsured is Ti Du in the Chinese, which is the shaving. Shaving the head when you're becoming yeah. a monk, uh, and and so tonsure in 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 the Western context is the Christian monks' heads being shaved uh, to to mimic the 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 halo shape, right? So, you know, I I don't know how true this is anymore, but certainly historically, you know, uh, monasteries would shave either the top of the head in a circle, so that there was a bald circle on top, or everything except for the hair directly on top, so that it sat on top like a kind of teacup and so yeah i guess this kind of tracks the hawks um convention of often taking uh chinese religious customs and putting them in a directly like uh european specifically christian Mm, that's um, that's interesting context you know so so i mean for example when people might say like uh Pusa, like uh, literally like bodhisattva in the Chinese, he'll translate as like dear lord or like my god, that sort of mm-hmm. thing, you know. Um, 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 another thing I wanted to highlight was what Hawks has as twas luck. Uh, in the Chinese, that would be mei yuan fa. And so the this idea of fate or karma, yuan or yuan fa that we've seen that before uh in discussion of again in chapter 5 actually in the, in the in the notion of you know how the uh you know kind of bemoaning the the vagaries of fate the question of why you know if if their meeting was fated to if it were if it were fated then why was it fated not to succeed that kind of thing whether between Bao Yu and and Bao Chai or Bao Yu and Dai Yu, um, so that's kind of a yeah. a callback. And, and uh, in this case, you know, yeah, exactly. It was not fated. It's May that that right. there was no Yuan Fa, um, you know. Um, and um, also, what what Hawks has as uh, I asked no goods, no gear to take away. That take away is the same uh, Qian Gua that we've seen a few times. Uh, we saw it in Chapter Five in. Uh, Wang Ning Mei, uh, the frowning brown 
the frowning brows poem uh where i've mentioned it a few times actually where you know the heart is being pulled to and fro uh and we also saw it last chapter right before right before uh bao yu starts reading the drongza that he he felt like he was being uh he was being pulled about this yeah Qianghua. yeah um and it's gonna it's gonna appear a few more times in the novel and that's kind of uh it's in a way that's uh bao yu's one of his central kind of uh challenges as a character you know the way he is pulled about by his very his various you know quote-unquote worldly attachments uh- and there's this kind of appealing uh, simplicity or, or austerity to the life that um, uh, the the character expects to live here. You know, as Hawke says, only straw sandals in a broken bowl. There's a there's a, a bit in the Chinese where it talks about uh, yen suo yu li, right? So yen is like in this case like mist, and yu is rain. Uh, suo is a kind of like a cape, but like a rough one made of like kind of plant fibers or something and lee is a, like a straw hat so you could read it as like a a cape against the mist and a, a hat to keep you dry from the rain um but in both cases like rather rustic and basic but it almost seems to be suggesting not that these this cape and this hat are separate things providing protection against those but rather it's almost saying like i take the mist as my cape and the rain as my hat you know mm-hmm. so yeah, it's this real sense of like vanishing off and becoming kind of somehow, uh, I guess, kind of like one with the mm-hmm. natural world in a way. Yeah, um, uh, there's a lot of uh, yeah, a lot of sort of austere images, but there's also kind of a, it's uh, kind of like an element of desirability or at least romance. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it's romance in kind of poverty and 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 obscurity, definitely. And just abandoning mm-hmm. the material world. Anyway, so Bao Chai's um, singing of the song and then their subsequent discussion um, rouses the ire of Dayu, who's <laughs> sitting nearby. Of course, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, she says, Shh, can't you be a bit quieter and attend to the play? This is Zhishan at the monastery gate we're supposed to be listening to, not Jing De acts the madman. Uh-huh. So you know she we we get this yeah absolutely a sense of her like um, that she's snappy but she's she's quite smart about it you know she's quite good at mm-hmm. she's she can like in an instant fire off a fairly kind of barbed insult and put you <laughs> yeah. in your place um, yeah definitely in character uh. yeah. <laughs> so I guess all the plays having finished. Um, uh, Grandmother Jai invites two of the young actors to come up and um, kind of meet them, uh, present themselves for inspection. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she likes them. She finds them very sweet. And as you said, she offers them some food from the table, but also a small amount of money each. Um, mm-hmm. Like a tip, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And th- it's at this point that Xi Feng makes this fateful observation. Um <laughs> which is that the way one of the child actors is made up, you know, um, makes uh, makes him look very much like uh, Dai Yu. But she doesn't come out and say that. She just says, it. you know, she looks like someone we know. Yes, yes. Uh, and nobody's willing to say anything 
of course, except, you know, one of the youngest members of the group, uh, Shang Yun, who we've seen before has a kind of, uh, she's less mediated, she's more immediate. Uh, she she also has a more direct, almost uh, tomboyish character to her. And she's like, yo, I know who it is. <laughs> it's it's uh, yeah. a cousin Lin, you know, it's, it's Dayu. And uh, as she's saying that, like, Baoyu is giving her this, I imagine, not quite a kind of death stare, but a sort of like, you know, silently oh God, okay. with the eyes wide as if to say Pipe like, down. shut up. But he's too late to stop her. Uh, and everyone then begins laughing. Um, and naturally, I think Dayu's and you can tell here that he didn't, you know, take the lesson, the the Taoist, you know, Uwe, the uh, non-action lesson uh, seriously yeah. enough. Because even this sort of like partial gesture is enough to... Uh, to land him in hot water with both. Right. Well, I mean, the, so the, what happens next is that, you know, uh, of course, uh, Shang Yun is a offended and she's actually planning on leaving early you know she, she feels kind of inferior uh she she feels as if her social role is lower than uh the rest of her, uh the other female members of the family and that she- yeah i feel like she maybe feels like she's put her foot in it there i mean it's not expressed that way in the novel but certainly were i in her shoes like she's thought what she's made what she thinks is maybe like a, a funny observation but has inadvertently ended up she's only the know. visitor at least um in the yeah. hawks it says i'm not in the same class as your cousin lean yeah uh, and she says you know she goes and say she's the young lady of the house i'm only a little nobody which is in the chinese she says Ta shi zhuzi gu niang. so she is zhuzi is like the 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 host the the head of the house, I suppose, and Gu Niang is, is, is like young woman. So she, yeah, exactly. She's a daughter of the household kind of thing. She's the young lady of the house. And then she goes on to say, mm-hmm. So Nu Cai is like a slave and Yato is a, as we've observed before, is a girl, but really a kind of maid servant. So, you know, she's high and mighty and I'm just, yeah, I'm kind of no one. Uh, and the only reason I mention that is because when we read on, Dayu makes uh, almost exactly the inverse statement. Um, right, right. Um, and so I wonder if that's both of them exaggerating or whether there really is some ambiguity there as to their relative social status. I'm not sure, you know. I, um, I think that, I guess the thing is neither of them it, are by birth jazz. You know, they are all, both Shi Xiangyun and Lin Dayu, as you can tell from their surnames, Shi and Lin are related by some kind of marriage connection. Um, whereas, obviously, Baoyu is, you know, is very much right. a, a jia. And we've had this, we had this discussion in, in a past... Last chapter. Yeah, in the last chapter, right? When he, With when uh, he, Jia Huan, who has the Jia surname, but who is the son of a concubine. And so he also is uh, unclear or um, sort of very conscious of the vagaries of his status. Yeah, he has a deep sense of inferiority, doesn't he? And we will see mm-hmm. that come uh, come out a bit later on as well. And so even if you get the Serb name, it's still not... There's still so many gradations uh, and so many kind of opportunities for uh, 
insecurity and resentment uh, and other kinds of uh, kind of complicated yeah. emotion. And so, having got nowhere with uh, Xiang Yun, Bao Yu goes off to apologize to Dai Yu or to speak to her anyway. And um, she is furious with him, you know. <laughs> and you can see that she's angry. And he's like, you know, what's all this about? Why, why are you so upset with me? Um, and she says, you know, don't ask me. I'm only a figure of fun, the sort of person you might compare with a child actor in order to get a good laugh from the others. <laughs> um, and and he says, well, you know, I didn't make that comparison and I didn't laugh. And then she says, yeah, well, that's worse. Like, you would have liked to have made the comparison. You would have liked to have laughed. <laughs> the fact that you didn't make the comparison and you didn't laugh was actually worse. She'd make, um, a, she'd make a good, uh, like, lawyer, or like a yeah, for, for yeah. a couple's uh, like therapist or something. I don't know. She just yeah, she absolutely batters him down rhetorically. Um, and then she goes on to say, you know, and then worst of all, you kind of gave her that look. And the meaning of, in her eyes, the meaning of Bao Yu's look at Xiang Yun was that she would cheapen herself by joking with Lin Dai Yu as an equal, mm -hmm. because she is an honourable, you know, she's a she's nobility, and Dayu is just a commoner. Mm -hmm. um, and this is where that like parallel phrase comes in. So whereas Xiang Yun has said, Ta shi zhu zi gu niang, um, Dai Yu says, Ta shi gong hou de xiao jie. <laughs> so she is a gong hou, which is a, I think translated here as a marquis, but you know, like a, it's some kind of person of noble mm -hmm. rank, Aristo. And then Xiao Jie is a miss, but really yeah, a yeah, daughter. So the wording they use is really, really similar. And then, Dai Yu describes herself as Wu Yuan Shi Min Jian de Yato. So Yato being again, as we said, girl, but really like maidservant. Mm -hmm. And Min Jian means of the common people, basically. I mean, so, so I guess the point here is really neither of them is actually Min Jian Yato. Uh, they're, they're all, they all have some degree of, I mean, even Lin Ruhai was. He was the he had a, a, the high position. He was the salt, uh, the the salt commissioner. Yeah, yeah. What was the name of that? The yeah, Gensher. salt. Yeah, salt commissioner. Uh, um, yeah. So, so yeah, exactly. Lin Dayu's father, when he was alive, was yeah, exactly a, a government official of high rank, even if he wasn't necessarily a uh, yeah a um a marquis. A it's, marquis but it's very a, comparable, I think. Yeah. Um, and so, I guess there's this. We see a little bit nowadays people of relative status kind of cosplaying as if they mm -hmm. were uh, commoners. <laughs> Something, uh, this is all very vaguely familiar. Um, uh, and, and the inverse being true, absolutely. You know, like and so who've come from very humble backgrounds, doing well for themselves and making money, then find themselves find themselves, I guess, unable to navigate the the mm -hmm. complex kind of social. Um, boundaries involved in right right or trying to buy you know trying to purchase these um these positions but not not always having the uh yeah the social capital to to navigate and to to play the part effectively uh but we see what's interesting here is we, we kind of see that there's two instances in which Bao Yu probably should have done nothing and each time he does something, even though it is a kind of ineffectual something. So the first time is when he makes the, the telling eye, the telling uh, visual gesture to uh, Shushangyun, uh, 
And the second time is when he goes to try to apologize to Shishang Yun. Each time, he probably should have done nothing at all, and it, it might have resolved itself. Yeah. And, and, and part uh, of the reason, exactly, that uh, Lin Dayu is upset with him is because she overheard what he was saying to Xiang Yun to apologize and took further offense from that. Anyway, having been so kind of set upon, he he thinks back to, he finds himself, while, while she's shouting at him, thinking back to this passage in the Drangzi, um, and he becomes dispirited and wanders off without saying anything. And at that point, she's saying, you know, oh, is that how it is? You know, well, fine, like, I'll never talk to you again. Never speak to me again. You know, never visit me again. Anything. Um, <laughs> um, of course. But that passage from the Drangza, I think, is is a good one to just pause on and, and take a closer look at. So, so as we said, you know, it's a, okay. it's a, one of the classic works of Chinese philosophy. It's from the pre-imperial era. So you're talking like before about 200 BCE. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's definitely a, a kind of, it's comparable to the message of the aria that Xu Baochai was singing to Bao Yu before. Um, um, and so in the Hawks, it's the cunning waste their pains, the wise men vex their brains, but the simpleton who seeks no gains with belly full, he wanders free as drifting boat upon the sea. And the message is very kind of similar, right? It's um, holding up the best life as the one where you seek to do nothing, you know? And th- there's just one line that really encapsulates this where it says, Wu neng zhe, wu suo qiu. So wu is to have, like, not have, basically. So neng is like ability, and zhe is like a person who has this thing basically so a person who has no ability is a base is basically wu nongja and what is it about wu nongja well they wu suo qiu so wu again has nothing and suo qiu is like to have things asked of you basically so the person who has no ability has nothing required of them has nothing demanded of them um whereas or, or more literally like there's nothing that they demand. oh right 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 yeah right. oh that's a good point yeah like like saw is like, uh, it's like nothing that, that which, which yeah, they ask. show. So, so that I guess yeah, like unangju uso cho. Yeah, like there's nothing that which they need. Yeah, you know if you don't, it's in English it would be something like uh, oh, I'm trying to think of the. Uh, there's definitely a, a kind of expression that's comparable. Uh, if you if you don't try, you can't fail. <laughs> Maybe something like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit that sense, isn't it? Yeah, it's like. It's a conscious rejection of like striving of you know the hard work of kind of human existence within sort of society you know it's not entirely dissimilar to the Buddhist idea of um, you know detaching from desire and hence uh, uh, distancing oneself from worldly attachments well also what's interesting yeah. is that it seems like the Buddhist school of thought that they're talking about in this chapter is what we would know as zen right what's known as chan in um chinese um which we tend to think of as i I think it's actually probably not that well understood by that many people in the west although we have a kind of idea of like what being zen is you know Mm -hmm. Um, yeah and it is that sort of rejection of the material world and a kind of inner peace and you know that Mm -hmm. that that's sort of the way that it figures in the western imagination certainly um I mean, you could argue that it's not the author himself is not exactly a like uh, a 
Chan master, you know, and so our own sort of um, idealizing, sort of even orientalizing tendencies when it comes to Buddhist uh, religious forms, you see a little bit, a little bit of that in this novel, uh, even though it is kind of going in the other direction. Uh, I guess kind of interesting. And so having thought about this passage, he also thinks of one other, right? Um, about timber trees inviting the axe and sweet strings, sweet springs being the cause of their own contamination. And yeah, again, it has this like a... There, there's a few passages in the Drongsa where the there's like a... It's the image appears in kind of different ways. There's different perspectives on the same idea. But the general idea is there's a few... Uh, like this one really gnarly old tree uh, which has grown large and and has lived a long life on account of its not being particularly useful and its wood not being good for uh for you know producing tables and and various tools and so on and so forth um and so it's kind of this the idea is the it it serves a kind of yeah it has a kind of use in use the use of uselessness that's sort of like uh it's it's sort of training the the Taoist master or the reader really to uh embrace a kind of uh yeah like to, to embrace uselessness yeah. in, in themselves and their uh, it kind of reminded me of um in a funny sense this like uh do you know the 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 chinese idiom uh sai wong shi ma the like the old man who lost his horse uh explain it so it's it's kind of it's from the Huainanzi, so it's like another Taoist text, also from the pre-imperial period, or maybe early Qin. I'm not sure, mm-hmm. um, but similar kind of time. And the story is basically there was an old man who had horses, uh, who had a horse, and his horse ran away one day, and people commiserated with him, and he said, "How do you know it's not a piece of good luck?" And then sometime later, his horse came back and brought with it a whole like herd of other horses. And people said, oh, this is fantastic. And he said, ah, but how do you know, actually, maybe this isn't bad luck. <laughs> and then his son was riding one of the horses and fell off and broke his leg. And so the people said, oh, you know, this is terrible, very unfortunate. And he said, well, how do you know that actually this isn't good luck? And, um, and then sometime later, the emperor... Uh, put out the call for like essentially arranged conscription for all like able-bodied young men and because his son had broken his leg he wasn't called up and didn't go away to war um, Mm. and thus survived Um, anyway it's this kind of like philosophical musing on um, what we perceive to be um, good and bad and what we perceive to be useful and it kind of yeah it did remind me a bit of like the useless tree right like um, Mm. um you perceive the tree as useless, but because it cannot be put to any use, it survives, you know, whereas the, the useful tree, which everyone, you know, perceives as very valuable, well, it, as its reward, gets chopped down and turned into planks or... Anyway, <laughs> enough enough amusing on, on this stuff. Bayou wanders off from speaking to Dayu, and yeah, you know, as a parting words, she's like, you know, don't ever come back, you know, don't speak to me again, you know, which... Is as we said, very in character for her. You know, um, I think easily angered and prone to saying rather hyperbolic things. 
in in the heat of anger. But Bao Yu is no less kind of angsty at this stage. He returns to his chamber and Xi Ren, his um his maid, tries to kind of improve his his mood, but he kind of snaps at her a bit. And um, you know, she says it's it's still New Year time. You should be enjoying yourselves and. He's like, what do I care? You know, nothing to do with me. <laughs> nothing matters. <laughs> and so he goes to his room and sits on his, you know, sits there crying, bitter, angry tears. And he writes, um, he writes this poem, right? After quoting, he, he he's like, what does it matter? My destiny is different. I am destined to be naked and friendless through the world to Rome. And so he, uh, he quotes the aria that uh, Pao Chai had earlier uh, quoted quoted to him. So he's clearly identifying with that character. And he's sort of, he, he's feeling alone, but he also, he wants to sort of, he wants to be even more alone, you know? Um, and this is, yeah, this is when he writes his own sort of imitation. Just like last chapter, he wrote an imitation Zhuangzian passage. And this time he has a a fake yeah. Buddhist gatha. Um, so what like what is a gatha in in Buddhism? Do we know? Uh, only the bare. I I know only the you know the bare minimum. It, it, it's some yeah some kind of uh, a chanted verse. You know the sort of thing you recite over and over. Again. Yeah, in, in my mind, I would compare it to maybe the Heart Sutra, uh, where it's a uh, sort of a cryptic and almost borderline nonsensical uh construction that's i think it's supposed to have sort of a numbing almost disorienting effect where you have i mean the heart sutra is characterized by having so many negations negations of negations and Mm -hmm. after a while you 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 like your mind starts to melt away a little bit and that sort of sensation is supposed to kind of be a step i think along the on the road toward uh the realization of no self and of uh, enlightenment and transcendence and becoming a buddha well i certainly had that impression here you know like uh, uh, <laughs> we, uh, we both take the time to read the chinese and kind of translate ourselves i think and and when i was reading this poem i put the hawks translation aside and didn't look at it and you know really tried to make sense of it myself and even going over it several times and really breaking it down and putting it back together my notes just say honestly pretty baffled yeah um, should i try which is i could you want me to try the get my rendering of the chinese so it's uh sure ni zheng wo zheng xin zheng yi zheng shu wu you zheng si ke yun zheng wu wu ke yun zheng shi li zu jing yeah and, and so I you mean, can even if you don't you know, if you didn't understand what I was saying, or you don't, you don't have any background in Chinese, you can just hear the sort of the, the strange repetitions, uh, and imagine, yeah, just imagine that there's a lot of like, like yes and no's in there, and like, uh, I don't, I don't know how to describe it, but how about the hawks? Should, should I read that as well? So the hawks reads, um, I swear, you swear, with heart and mind, declare, but our protest is no true test. It would be best, words unexpressed, to understand, and on that ground, to take our stand. Um, I, I think he, I mean, he doesn't necessarily <laughs> capture the meaning, although, I suppose, he doesn't maybe capture the meaning that closely, but he captures the spirit of it very well, I think. Um, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. Here it's not a problem. I have some misgivings with one of his renderings later, just because I think it obscures the like the image a little bit. But I, I thought this was a good kind of a, a good a good um, render. So, <laughs> um, the you know having finished writing, Bayou then worries that although he had now attained enlightenment, others had not and would not understand the meaning of this gatha. So he pens a further explanatory poem to follow. Yes. Um, and so it really, like, I think this is where the author just, like, nails teenage pomposity. Like, <laughs> he is he just makes himself into such an absurd character. Um, so, yeah, he, he writes this, this kind of, yeah, as you said, kind of cryptic, rhythmical, repetitive Gatha. Mm. And then he writes an explanatory poem to finish. Um to kind of accompany it. Um, and so the same evening, once Bayou has gone to sleep, Dayu comes around to look for him. And Aroma says he's already asleep. You know, his maid says she, he's already asleep. Uh, but she gives Dayu this sheet of paper that she's found mm. with the with the Lagatha and the accompanying poem on it. And she reads it. And I think it's quite, I think it's good to, 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 to read aloud. So in the Hawks translation, it says... You would have been at fault if not for me. But why should I care if they disagree? Free come, mm -hmm. free go. Let nothing bar or hold me. No more I'll sink and soar between gloom and elation or endlessly debate the depth of our relation. What was the point of all that past bother when I look back on it? Oh, sorry. What was the point of all that past pother when I look back on it? It seems scarce worth the bother. And she laughs immediately. Uh. <laughs> yeah, she laughs and gives it back to her. Um. Although there is a little bit of the sense here that you know both you know Bao Yu and Bao Chai, neither of them is invested in his becoming you know too religious or too spiritual or even maybe too studious, uh, and so they, it's true they're making fun of this uh, material because it's bad <laughs> but it's also they're invested you know in in value in kind of they're libidinally invested in effect um and maybe also materially there know, is like interested the, there is one right. line of the poem actually that i want to pick out the first one um which in hawks is you would have been at fault if not for me right in the chinese it's um which is literally um, like not have me originally not fault you, basically. So uh, essentially it's like I was not the one who originally wronged you, right? Um, mm. But there is a slightly different meaning here as well, which I think is almost there's a sense of it being like without me, there is no you sort of thing. Um, and so even in this... yeah. In the sense of like self, maybe like a Buddhist, like if the if there's no self, there's no other. That's that's how I'd kind of interpret that, right? But it, it's ba it's backwards. Rather than uh, going forwards and establishing the self, you're going backwards and you're de-establishing the other in order to de-establish the self or something. But but what's interesting here to me is that I think it's actually even though the poem is kind of doggerel, it's harking back to um, the mythical, like. 
origins of both Baoyu and Daiyu as the, the the magic stone and the um, the crimson uh -huh. pearl flower. You know, so he, as the stone, watered the flower, keeping her alive with this kind of magical mm -hmm. sweet dew. And then she, in return, like, came down to Earth with him and was, like, made flesh, you know. Um, and, you know... And so I, th that's where I kind of that's where I kind of uh, go with this line is to think like y you know were it not for the actions of the stone then the crimson pearl flower might not have survived but certainly would not have taken human form. To corroborate your point, some of the language used uh, speaks to you know harkens back to the material from the uh, first chapter, and so what Hawks has rendered as endlessly is actually mong mong. And so in the first chapter, there was Mang Mang Dasher, who was one of the uh, the acolytes, the religious acolytes, who uh, attends the stone. First chapter. Uh, so I think that, I think that corroborates your your kind of your reading of you know Uwa uh, Yuan Feini, that kind of thing. You know, if it weren't for me, there wouldn't be you. If it weren't for you, there wouldn't be me. This kind of primal origins. Okay, so having discovered the poem, what happens next? And so, actually, so this was uh, Daiyu and Baochai together discover the poem, is that correct? Right, exactly. I, I think Daiyu finds it, and then she shows it to Baochai, and they read it together. And then they decide to to confront uh, Baoyu about it and to kind of uh, make sure he knows that he is, in fact, not enlightened. And uh, Dayu's technique is to is to present him with a a koan, which she knows he won't be able to answer, and so she has this question for him. She's like she's like Bao Yu, uh, addressing him in, in a heavily mock serious manner. I wish to propound I wish to propound a question to you, Bao, is that which is of all things the most precious, and you is that which is, of all things, the most hard. Wherein lies your preciousness, and wherein lies your hardness? And of course, Bao Yu is a little bit uh, slow in the uptake, and he doesn't have a good, like, kind of a pithy response. Uh, and, the, and the girls mm -hmm. start clapping yeah. their hands and laughing yeah. at him. <laughs> so for one who is apparently enlightened, he doesn't, still seems to be in the dark. He's remarkably obtuse. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and so she adds a couple of lines to his gatha as well, uh, which are, in Chinese is a ji is the way is the word they use. But you know, um, but I have to say I didn't really understand like what more it really added to it. You know, I think she's maybe adding a few lines on, but there's a kind of hint of mockery in the, in them. But they're more of the same kind of character of um, a, a kind of slightly cryptic slightly kind of cryptic content right yeah you know if we read it later in terms of after you're know, adding these lines they uh bao chai relates a very famous parable of in the hawks it's rendered the sixth patriarch huinang who would eventually succeed the the fifth patriarch hongren uh on yellow plum mountain uh, and this is kind of a yeah. relatively famous, relatively well-known gatha or, or story, and, right? And, 
and this is also in uh this is within chan which is say zen mm-hmm. buddhism right the the patriarch mm-hmm. is something like a like a leader figure of um that particular school of buddhism right right this, and this goes all the way back to the the tang dynasty um and they're basically it's kind of like a a rap battle except with uh competing <laughs> competing g competing gothas um when the fifth patriarch wants to choose a successor a successor he orders each to compose a gotha uh the elder monk uh shen Zhou, uh his gotha is our body like the bow tree is our minds a mirror bright then kept it clean and free from dust so it reflects the light and so huinang is nearby uh and he's actually a yeah he's working in the kitchen yeah so he's of lower status and so he's not really even um he's not supposed to be part of the competition even and so he but he uh, on the spot has his own gotha which uh is going to win the competition and it's basically in the hawks reading it's no real bow tree the body is the mind no mirror bright since of the pair, none's really there on what could dust delight. Um, and that's and that's the moment where like the whole crowd just like erupts, you know. I would say, and the the yeah. fifth patriarch like uh, there and then like hands him his robe and bowl <laughs> to be like you are the successor. Yeah. Uh, so it's very fantastical, right? Um, but the idea is that the the Chen uh, Show he uh, he's comparing the body to the Bodhi tree and he's comparing his heart to a, or his mind, his heart mind rather, as I'd say, to a, uh, a clear mirror, right? A sh- uh, kind of shining mirror, right? Uh, whereas, you know, to upstage him in effect, uh, Hui, Hui Nang is saying, you know, the Bodhi tree is not really a tree or, or really the Buddha is not a tree. You know, the great clarity is not a mirror. These things are before materiality and above and beyond materiality. And so how could dust the light on them? And so it's like, you, you know, it is sort of, it does seem like it's a nice, uh, and that relates to my, my interpretation of how that relates to the lines that they append to Bao Yu's uh, kind of little little ditty was that, you know, who is he to... It's similar to last chapter, you know, who is he, on what ground is he passing judgment when ground itself is, you know, this material illusion. And it, it, that's the basic idea. There is a little bit of uh, insight there, although they are simply trying to, I think, uh, shame him and make fun of him and also turn him away from these monastic uh, exactly they're just they're, they're bursting his bubble he's he's got all kind of puffed up and they're just deflating him you know i think it's remarkable that the the use of artwork and, and these artistic representations has been effective in allowing them to overcome their emotions because now at least they're talking to each other uh it's as if by representing it and by you know, sublimating all these emotions into artwork, they're able to actually uh, mend their relationship. 
in, in some real ways. And so I, I think there might actually be a kind of a lesson to be learned here. You know, the use of kind of the, not, not like the, like the morality of artwork, but the, uh, maybe the morality of artwork in a kind of, uh, kind of like a virtue ethics capacity where you are, you're creating artwork as a means to, uh, uh, cultivating the soul in, in some secular sense, right? That's how I would, that's, that's what I took away from this. I, I thought this was sort of, uh, interesting and constructive.